lately has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. The mysteries of creation are there. Up in the sky? Up in the sky. The moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 218 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, you know, in December, for December, we wanted to do a bit of a mini-series focusing on the cloud. You know, we talk about a ton of technologies that are based in the cloud, rely on the cloud for their operation, you know, Obviously, things like artificial intelligence, all the stuff we talk about, about, you know, data-driven systems and, you know, all of this stuff depends on cloud storage, cloud computing, uh, you know, all, you know, the creation of, cloud, of server farms, all that stuff. But we haven't really talked a lot and focused very much on a materialist analysis of the cloud itself as an object that exists out there in the world, as a network of buildings and technology and data and so on you know so we we really in this mini series you know want to get a little bit deeper into the you know the political ecology the political economy the political theory all of that good stuff focused on the cloud and so there's no better place no more essential place to start than with the critical ecologies of the cloud and with that we are extremely happy to be joined by Mel Hogan, who's director of the Environmental Media Lab at the University of Calgary, and who does a lot of really great research on the environmental politics of server farms and data centers. Uh, so Mel, thank you for coming on. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, I mean, where where to even start? You know, I think in, I, I think with with like the the kind of circles of of scholars and journalists that we all run in, it's now pretty commonsensical to to like point at the cloud and be like, hey, that's an environmental thing. It doesn't actually exist up there in in the ether. Uh, it it you know that's a lot of discourse. That's a lot of marketing to make us forget that the cloud is a physical object. I I always think of these stickers that I saw you know starting like you know, six or seven years ago that were just, that said the cloud, there's no such thing as the cloud. It's just other people's computers. But I think there's, as your work shows, there's, it's even more interesting and even more complex than just merely pointing at this thing and being like, Hey, the cloud is a, is a thing that is a computer or a server farm or a network of computers that exist in a building somewhere that needs electricity and water in order to run. Like all of that is true, but there's also a lot more to it. 
than that. And a lot more to the, the way that big tech companies are kind of positioning themselves in relationship to the ecology of the cloud. So uh, maybe, yeah, like where, how did you, where was your kind of entry point into studying environment, like environmental media or studying the cloud as environmental media? Yeah, I think I've been doing this for about 10 years now. And, um, and like you say, uh, you know, there was a time where just, uh, thinking that our data was stored in a, in a kind of warehouse was like really insightful. <laughs> like that would, that would blew people's minds, you know? Um, but the, the way I came to it was, uh, when I was doing a, a postdoc in Colorado in Boulder in Colorado, and, um, I had just finished a dissertation that was basically tracking a video art archive that one of the first in Canada that had been online and it had crashed and no one had done a backup. So like kind of, you know, classic story of like early internet, like losses or whatever and then at some point said someone said well those those videos actually still exist they're on um a server in texas and that blew my mind because again this is like i don't know it's like 2010 and these things are not as obvious as they are now and i i don't know i just at that point thought how does this all work? How does it all come together? What do you mean it's in Texas? How are these things? How do we know where they go? Like, does this matter? How, how does it become material? So I just wanted to sort of track that. And then because I was in Colorado, the, um, the, that kind of location, um, inspired in some ways a connection between the, um, environment and those questions of materiality and where things were located. It's like a little bit strange, but I would say the place itself inspired me to make that connection. And I was sort of shifting my work, you know, into that postdoc to be something specific. So then I decided to look at, at where uh, files were stored, what, what those places looked like. And I came across an article by James Glantz, which was like power pollution in the internet. You, you probably remember this one. I feel like it was one of these journalistic pieces that, um, got us all talking about it. So I would say it was like discovering that and linking it to um, early internet archives that, that, you know, started that thing for me. Mm, I, I like that kind of starting point as well of, of kind of repudiating one of the many, you know, truism myths of, of the early internet that I think have like affected the way we think about these things, right? This idea that like when you post something online, it's there forever, right? As if the internet is some kind of like permanent record that's going to follow you. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this a few weeks before it's going to be released. I'll just timestamp that because we are in the midst of uh, uh, Elon Musk's you know, crashing like the Hindenburg of Twitter. And one of the, th and the reason I bring that up is one of the th very first things that Elon Musk cut in his, you know, operation deep cuts, uh, for, for Twitter was something like $3 million of infrastructure cost a day. A lot of that is servers, right? So it's like, you know, at some point in the very near future, it's very likely that all of our posts are going to, uh, evaporate. They're going to be gone. They're going to be corrupted because because, you know, all that stuff has to exist on, as you said, a server somewhere in the world. Um, and so every, you know, every video, every picture, every post uh, that you that you upload to the Internet, um, it sits there in a server somewhere. But, the, but those things 
they don't just exist in a static state. They exist in a, a, a highly maintained state. Like, you know, as soon as you get rid of, you know, your uh, reliability engineers or your maintenance workers, the kinds of people that are doing this like data custodianship uh, every single way, every single day to keep this stuff functioning, like entropy very quickly takes hold and the stuff starts collapsing and corrupting and, 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 you know, if not going away completely, becoming essentially uh, unreadable as data. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's something in what you're saying that makes me think of the conversations I was having when I was doing my dissertation and interviewing people who were essentially setting up this uh, video art archive and how they knew so little about how it all functioned. And like you say, they trusted sort of in the technology itself as a kind of self-sustaining, like someone surely was doing backups and surely that's how the internet worked and it would just be there when you searched for it, et cetera. And there's something about like that kind of naive understanding that I think is reflected also in these earlier, you know, scholarly takes on the internet's role. And if we look at, you know, something today like Elon's takeover of, of Twitter and the questions people are asking around data storage, it's so sophisticated, so complex, it's so nuanced. And I think we're just seeing an explosion of like scholarly work that's addressing this idea of the data center and servers at every possible layer. Like this is blowing my mind that in a decade, this field has, has really started from tracking a file on a server to these really complicated questions that merge the materiality with the politics and so on. So your work has also really focused on the way that big tech companies like the Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Alphabet, right? Like the, the you know, the, the kind of big hallmark tech companies, which are very much in the the data business. A lot of them are, you know, building their own data servers, having to maintain these data servers. And with that means uh, using or generating or grabbing uh, a lot of land and water and energy in order to maintain these uh, highly expensive uh, and, and also very, very brittle, fragile infrastructures that require such, you know, um, exact parameters of oper to, to, to operate. And so you, it, your work ha uh, has looked at the way in which these big tech companies have also started becoming the kind of environmentalists, right? They've had to engage in what you call these big data ecologies, uh, in, in various ways. And so, I don't know, could you set the scene for how big tech has kind of, you know, positioned themselves um, as, uh, as, as green tech, as environmentalists uh, along the way of like creating these data infrastructures? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think they've done that. They've set themselves up to be these kind of custodians or, or even like sort of representatives of um, environmental stewardship in part as a response to demands for that. Um, and, and often we just refer to this as greenwashing, but I think it's more sort of complex or nuanced in this, in this case. So um, the, you know, some of the, the, you know, there are so many cases, so many instances, so many examples of this, but I looked um, in one of the pieces I wrote about uh, big data ecologies. I was just 
trying to give really sort of concrete examples. You know, if you look at the way, I don't know, to pick on Google for a second. Um, and again, this was written about 10 years ago, and then it came out, you know, in, in around 2018. But so some of this stuff might be a little bit outdated, but I think the sort of overall idea still applies. So if you take something like um, Google, and then they partner with public infrastructure that is to help um, purify water, it's a water treatment plant. And they say, hey, if we go in on this with uh, what would otherwise be entirely sort of public infrastructure, and they say, you know, we're going to reinvest, we're going to make the technology better for treating water, but we're going to use 30% of that for our data centers. So it's like a win-win. Um, and then, and then that way we get to power data centers and then people get clean water. And in fact, at the time in the research I'd done, the water needed to be cleaner for data centers than it did for drinking. I don't know if that's still the case. I think there's different types of like cooling, um, liquids now that are used but at the time that was like one really interesting sort of example of how um google was inserting itself into this question of of um tending to something like water or speaking on behalf of this idea of you know they had this idea of around clean water and they also you know once the water had sort of been used through the data centers it was sent back out into the river and there wasn't much discussion about like well is that still water? Like if it's like, if everything is removed from water, is that still water? And can you just send it back into the river? And no one's asking those questions. No one's there to push back really. And like, by the time there are consequences, if there are, and we can assume there are, um, that will be like a decade or something, right? Harder to sort of position yourself to push back. So um, I think that that's just one, one example that I give in the paper is just like something something to consider like why is it that big tech someone like uh, you know some someone like well not someone something like google would um be able to make those decisions um so that was one of the sort of provocations that i offered in that paper yeah you had this really provocative uh idea of, of dead water right and the, this idea that the data centers did require water that was so clean, as you were just saying, that it, it required killing all of the bacteria in the water, removing all of the minerals. So you have this hyper pure water, but it's also water that is devoid of life. And that stuff is really important. You know, it's like uh, the bacteria is what breaks down solid waste. Uh, you know, the minerals are important for living organisms that live in or drink that water. Uh, and, and so, it's a, it's a really, it raises this interesting question and it is the, you know, it is the kind of like the, the, the pristine purity of technology meeting the, you know, the, the kind of messy realities of nature. And then, you know, the being able to say, cause it sounds really great uh, for Google to be like, you know, we are investing money in cleaning water and we are producing water that is, it's, it's so clean. It's the cleanest water you've ever seen. It's, it's, it's pure. Uh, and then we are putting, you know, we're, we're not wasting it. We are putting it back into the environment. So even though our, you know, a mid-sized data center uses anywhere from 80 million to 130 million gallons of water, uh, you know, then that, that, that's not water that's just wasted. It's why, you know, we recycle it and reuse it. But I think you raise this, this really great question that, you know, comes with a lot of these kind of approaches to environmentalism that don't, that ironically don't see it 
in terms of ecology, right? Seeing it as relations of kind of living and non-living things of, of, a, of a vast web of life, uh, as Jason Moore, uh, the uh, political ecologist puts it, right? But, you know, rather seeing, it, seeing ecology in terms of ecosystems, right? And ecosystems being this very discrete kind of economized, technologized, marketized, uh, reframing of how to govern and understand uh, the environment. Mm-hmm. I think what I was trying to do in that in that paper is just sort of offer up a framework reflecting on ecology as um, you know a, a kind of invented scientific approach to try to understand the relationship between different nodes. But the the sort of ultimate. Um, goal in some ways was to of ecology was to render scientific something that was really unruly and something that was really you know sort of impossible to to frame within these like kind of control narratives like they had this idea of ecology where you have these nodes and then you can just uh, you know intervene in a particular place to restore a kind of balance sort of in contradiction with the idea that nature has um you know this 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 kind of balance and and humans can intervene when necessary to bring it back to a place where it sort of makes sense. Like this is a little bit abstract, but I keep thinking of, you know, the creation of parks or the creation of other types of, uh, of places that need to always be maintained in a particular way. So ecology always invites sort of a kind of custodianship over that. And then you, you maintain it as it is at a particular time and then you work around that and i think what's interesting is that idea of control which is sort of one of the goals arguably of big tech more generally is to accumulate huge amounts of data in order to make predictions in order to be able to anticipate and i think that they would say in order to come up with some capital t truths right so the idea of the the big project of big tech is to gather data to then make sense of things um, for us, which lends itself to this kind of ecological, um, I think, framework in the sense of, of, of thinking that there are particular ways that you can map out the whole world and then intervene for very specific ends. And in that paper, I argue that those ends are neoliberal, uh, that those ends are really, um, they're sort of like, a, you know, the, this way of thinking is sort of like a, a trap. Um, if you think of neoliberalism in the sense of um, these data centers and the, the sort of whole project of, of big tech, it, it sort of like cannot see outside of its own uh, framework. So the goal it sets out for itself is also the, is also the way it's going to understand nature being at its service. Um, it's all a little bit abstract, but if you ask me questions, I can unpack some <laughs> some of that. Um, yeah, I think I mean that that was one of the kind of horrifying things that you I think you tease out where you you're kind of talking about how you know this sort of this sort of ecological framework that's being pushed through look by virtue of locating humanity outside of outside of people itself and by creating this idea that everything is that the real way for us to reach humanity. And I think this lines up with what you're talking about with this big T truth project, the, the, the way for us to really enjoy and realize and discover what humanity is to, is to subsume more of the world to these machines and their pursuits and resources and infrastructure. And, and, and then it will sort of uh, lead us to this insight, but 
that, you know, what that ends up doing is continuing this neoliberal framework where it seems like a few, very few people are profiting from it, and they are, but in reality, we're all losing out on it because it's radically de uh, degrading, I, I think, the experience of what it is to be a person in, in maybe in the romantic sense, but also quite literally narrowing the ways in which we imagine humans should be able to flourish and live their lives. Because now we're saying, well, I've, you know, without the machine and without its centrality to our lives and without the devices that themselves are, you know, can, are not sustainable, not compatible with nature, um, without these things, then we can't actually be human beings. And anything other than that is abhorrent and is non-negotiable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think that there's, there's, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, we're in a little bit deep here <laughs> in our thinking about this, but I think that what we're also kind of not saying for some reason is that this is a colonial project right. and that that gathering of data is really also always sort of eugenics. If we're linking it to humans uh, in particular, um, there, there is this, this, uh, you know, in that sort of positivist um, sort of framework there's also a colonial project which is like i guess on, on like one level it's like the actual grabbing of land often near water um and then there's also the project sort of enabled in and through the data center which is that bizarre project of revealing truths about humanity in order i think to maintain certain hierarchies certain power relations to reinforce that colonial project so this is what i mean it's like this self-fulfilling thing um and the, and the scale of it is quite terrifying i think yeah, like the the ecosystems kind of neoliberal framework. You know, it has all this all these terms for for to kind of reframe these relationships. So like, you know, Google or Apple are quote unquote partnering with nature, right? Like nature becomes like another industry partner that you sign like a a memorandum of understanding other Gaia. And so it's like framed in that way of like partnering rather than, you know, I think is is what it obviously is in a, in a lot of ways, as you've just raised, Mel, is a, a more of a subjugation, right? It's a subjugating nature to the the ends, the goals of, uh, of humanity, but not just humanity, but of capital and not just capital, but of a particular sector of capital focused on uh, profit-oriented digital communication, right? And and then that becoming the the kind of foundations now for uh, every other form of capital, right? Like, you know, I think it was Prospect Magazine or the American Prospect had a really great investigative piece a year, a couple years ago talking about how uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, right? And so for people who may not be aware or have forgotten, AWS is the big, one of, one of if not the biggest cloud computing uh, providers in the world. It's a, a an arm of Amazon. Uh, and like many things that Amazon does, it was created first as an in-house uh, cloud infrastructure and then eventually grew so big that they rolled it out into a service for that they sell to you know everyone from uh, a, a new startup just coming out of Stanford to the CIA and everyone in between. It, it's the it's the, the profit 
the main profit engine of Amazon. It's not where you know. It's not where a lot of their revenue comes from. That's a, that's the commerce, but it's where most of their profits come from. Um, and so that just shows how profitable uh, the cloud is. But I I I, I bring that up um, as well to talk about how like you know the creation of these data centers, right? The maintenance of them, the growth of them uh, requires this kind of subjugating nature to the ends of the digital platform. And while there might be stuff around like, you know, Google being a, one of the largest corporate renewable energy buyers on the planet, you know, at the, at the same breath, uh, Amazon is creating cloud uh, uh, infrastructure specifically for uh, and in partnership with the oil and gas industry, for example. So there's almost this kind of, you know, they, they, they want the, the infrastructure itself to be greened, right? To be in partnership with nature, to be powered by uh, renewable energy, to be cooled by recycled water. So the operations of the data center can be talked about as greening. And they even... Google even talks about, as you as you point out in your article, that uh, there's not even an, uh, an opportunity cost here because it's not like Google is buying renewable energy, according to them, that could be used for, say, you know, better uh, better purposes, purposes more directly related to human flourishing and development, um, rather than the you know at, at once frivolous ends of like you know keeping our documents in the Google Cloud or like you know, storing your pictures forever from a birthday party 20 years ago that you forgot about or to more insidious ends of, uh, of, of, of a hyper profitable business. Um, you know, all that aside, they say, no, no, there's no opportunity cost here where this is called additionality, right? We are actually incentivizing the creation of more uh, clean energy than, than ever would before. But of course, a lot of this folk, a lot of this greening focuses on the, the operations of the the cloud and and maybe not the purposes that it's later put towards for uh, you know fossil fuel for uh, the military industrial complex for all these other things that are actively and exponentially contributing uh, to the the destruction of the environment far more so than uh, Google incentivizing the creation of another uh, gigawatt of solar energy or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just the oil and gas um, uh, sort of component of it makes me think of this one of the snippets I wrote about in the paper. Um, you know, just this idea that when the hurricane hit Houston, the data center remained operational. And in part, I think, you know, um, while while citizens, while people were living without power, the data center could not afford to be without it. And, it, and it's because a lot of the data in that in that particular um, data center was for the oil and gas industry. And, and so, again, so it's this like recursive thing where uh, oil and gas, as we know by now, is responsible for a lot of these devastations, uh, which can trigger things like hurricanes. But then is ultimately protected from it. And people were even sheltering inside that data center. Some of the staff, they brought in their families, there are showers, you can do laundry. So it became kind of a bunker, right? So, um, so again, that's sort of this interesting 
um, I like these sort of more evocative stories in and around data centers because they show us what's being protected and whose interests and who and what will get priority. And, you know, if you think of things like electricity or even water, like that's sort of a big deal. <laughs> it's sort of a big conversation to be had, you know, um, around just the centrality of data centers. Like it's, it's, yeah, they're like these really important structures in terms of um, in increasingly uh, less accessible and um, fewer sort of what we would call natural resources, though I find that problematic, like access to those things, you know, are going to be given to those machines before they're given to humans. And now we, we have seen that happen, right? It's not speculation. Yeah, I think it's actually worth quoting from, so your, your big data ecologies piece starts with two, you call them snippets uh, that kind of set the scene. I think it's actually worth quoting the paragraph you have on this hurricane. Then I'll, I'll let Ed jump in. I'm sure he's a uh, champion at the bit right now <laughs> with this, but uh, <laughs> you write, quote, as Hurricane Harvey devastated Houston with catastrophic flooding and October 2017, displacing its citizens and causing ongoing power outages for thousands of them, data centers in the area remained operational. Diesel generators allowed the lights to stay on and kept servers running. One data center in the area was stocked with food, water, and cots, showers, and washing machines. It provided a safe harbor for its workers, their family members, and even United States Marshals. This data center was built to withstand a hurricane, tornado, or ice storm to keep internet services going and because it is in Houston to safeguard the data of practically every single large oil and gas company in the world. Now just put a plug in here that uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Dan Green on his article about the, the landlords of the internet and we'll be talking exactly about the kind of uh, how and why and by whom these data centers are created to essentially be these uh, pristine uh, you know, fortresses that run at uh, uh, optimal capacity at all times no matter what's happening in the, the world around them. You know, I was talking to someone also about this uh, the other day, but a lot of the um, a lot of the focus when there's dystopian sci-fi is on the sort of corporate megacities um, and and domination of the skyline with advertising space or on your eyeballs. But there's also like a subset of sci-fi stories where they try to quite literally convert the physical world into computational substrate for some. AI God, essentially, right? And 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 thinking about the the proliferation of this infrastructure, as well as like critiques coming from um, people, or this article I recently read from Timothy Gebru, where she kind of uses that to to criticize existential risk and arguing that these people, whether they understand it or not, are like th are thinking about like you know arriving at Ashkaton, um, and think that the more of the world we hand over. Uh, to questions of like minim minimizing existential risk or cutting down the odds of some cataclysmic event, destroying our ability to have nirv digital nirvana, that, that these are ends in of themselves. And, and so I'd be curious about your thoughts about this. You know, what are some of the, or are there, do you see similar sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, just like eschatological thinking with people who are in the ecosystems management that we might see in other aspects of uh, justifying, rationalizing, and expanding um, big tech or using it to justify hierarchy and power and imperial relations, the way that we're seeing in some of these like X-risk communities. 
Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer for that. I think it's a really good provocation. Just I just read that to- Toby Ord um, uh, book, uh, which is in, in along that, that line of thinking. I would say that that's sort of like, in some ways, the brilliance of the industry is to never make those things explicit. Um, and I think, you know, if I, if we come back to that snippet that Jason just read about, um, that data center in Houston, um, I, I keep thinking of the, the work that, you know, I, I got that from James Glance, the same guy who wrote that other article like 10 years before that I loved uh, just by coincidence. But the fact that journalists go into these places and are able to infiltrate in some sense, these spaces that sometimes scholars aren't, don't have access to. Um, and I think it's interesting that journalists do that first sort of level investigation <laughs> and then scholars, um, get to do a longer form sort of critique of those things. Um, and I think the kind of question that you're asking is worthy of, of that. Like it's worthy of like taking a, a few maybe snippets or sites and, and, and sort of, asking that of the infrastructure. I'm not sure that I have an, an answer only insofar as it would make no sense for the industry to um, to be explicit about goals that were in any way you, well, on the other hand, anything around longevity, which is connected like the Peter Thiels and like the, mm. these dudes are sort of, they don't know they're being explicit about these kind of end goals, but they're, they're of the same sort of, I don't know what to call it, like logic community, um, you know, for, for these kinds of long-term projects. So I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sorry, I can't answer the question. I think it's a really good provocation. Do you have, uh, do you have an answer? <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm just curious about it because I've, I, you know, over the past few years, I've been trying to think more about like, you know, the roots of, or how you know, it feels like this runs through a lot of it. I feel a lot of people just, it feels like drifted out of the singulitarian cult mm-hmm. and are still carrying water for it in one way or another. But then how much of that is like them directly connected to it and just like ideas that spring out of the sort of people who are advancing these technologies or the, or, you know, the ideas needed to kind of push them through, whether it's the settler mentality, you know, or whether it's this, uh, you know, sort of like tech solutionist uh, framework of, of thinking that the more that we roll out these devices, the more we can learn, we can solve things and learn about each other and discover that like transcendental truth. So I don't know. I got more the opposite sense, like from the precipice anyway, that the sense was that, you know, climate change was, um, you know, in a way, he div- he, the, the, the ORD take on it was dividing a little bit pandemics from climate change. Arguably, they are of each other. Um, but he was sort of um, downplaying sort of climate catastrophes and saying we should be, you know, really watching out for AI going off the rails. So to me, that's sort of intention or in contradiction with this idea that it will save us in any right. way. Um, but that book was all about warnings and was all about what's about to come and kill us. So like, that, that's a little <laughs> bit the premise of like all the ways in which we're going to, we're going to go. So, um, so no, I got, I got more the sense that like um, that we had to be a little bit skeptical and there's, I, I don't know, if uh his name is escaping me and he's so famous the the guy who wrote uh the sapiens book oh yuval noah harari uh, yeah harari sorry <laughs> so uh, harari also i don't know if he's part of that crew or but there there are resonances as well and i think that again there we're getting a lot of warnings in and around technologies so i don't know my impression was sort of it's celebratory in that we're investing billions of dollars and we are putting 
all, again, in quotes, natural resources into this project. And then simultaneously, almost by the same people being told that it is doomed to fail and destroy everything. So, um, maybe that's, you know, and that's that accelerationist take, maybe Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, maybe that's the goal. (laughs) It doesn't make sense to us because we're like, why would you do both? Uh, why would you invest to destroy? But like, uh, yeah, that's not outside the realm of possibility. Maybe there does seem to be this, uh, a kind of, a really bizarre logic at play here as well. If we're thinking about the ecologies of the cloud and the, and the kind of ideologies of the cloud, right? Which is what a lot of, a lot of the kind of, you know, existential risk or existential savior, uh, is really about an ideology of, of the cloud or of, you know, uh, of, of, uh, of software, you know, facilitated by the cloud um there's you know it's this idea and you kind of tease this out a little bit in your in your paper um but i would love to to talk about it now because i think it's only accelerating right this idea that like we need to keep building more and more of these uh infrastructures that are like very in, in both ways direct and indirect um contributing to uh climate catastrophe right like you know uh, all for the purposes of what right the purposes of uh creating maintaining and growing data and communications we need to you know on one hand we can't stop building them we can't stop growing them right you need more and more data centers um, which means using uh, exponentially more energy and more water, um, but also uh, all of the uh, rare earth minerals needed to create the server farms, uh, you know, the all the other stuff that goes into um, not just OPEX, right, the operational expenditures, but the CAPEX, right, the capital expenditures of building these data centers in the first place, building these server farms, um, which is already very environmentally costly, in addition to the, you know, continual infinite operation of them. And it's like, all of this stuff is so obviously and you know leading to and contributing to environmental and social destruction, whether it's the data centers themselves, or as we talked about, the, the, the biggest clients and customers of these data centers are, you know, the, uh, the military industrial complex are the oil and gas and fossil fuel industry are the industries that are, uh, you know, mining, right? Like all of these are massive, you know, finance, right? All of these are massive industries that are in their own ways, often linked with each other, uh, destroying the world. Uh, and, but, it, but the logic here seems to be on one hand, if we can make them more efficient through greening, then uh, we'll be able to reach some kind of like circular data economy where you can just infinitely build and maintain data centers um, without in a, in a circular fashion, without ever actually having anything go out into the world, right? This is the dream of like net zero or the dream of the circular infinite recycle, uh, recyclable economy. And a lot of that is more about like buying time, right? Buying time uh, in the, the, the creation and operation of these things. Until at some point, uh, like some kind of paradigm shift happens where I don't know if you, if, if you reach some unknown threshold where, uh, you know, you build, you build 
up to a precipice of data centers holding however many petabytes of data and then you cross that precipice suddenly the solution to environmental degradation uh, and social destruction is found uh, like that seems to be the logic at play right like accelerate as fast as possible while trying to build buy as much time as possible until we can cross some unknown, uh, perhaps non-existent finish line. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that meme, like men would rather, I don't know, blow up the planet than go to therapy. You know, that, that <laughs> it's sort of like this, this running uh, kind of joke. But, it, but, but then I was like, but is it a joke? Because we see Zuckerberg sort of, you know, desperate to live in the metaverse. Um, and we see Musk, you know, really investing in this like humanoid robot. And I was thinking, is there an element that we're not factoring in that is really like, you know, almost to like psychoanalyze this kind of logic where you're like, is it so unbearable to be human that we are, we are seeing sort of a huge investment in not being in our bodies anymore. So whether it's a virtual augmented reality or it's sort of imagining these humanoid sort of robots. Like it's kind of an interesting evolution to these kind of logics, right? Like, I don't know how that ties into the eugenics colonial thinking of this sort of getting rid of the body entirely, but it does seem like a possible next step to this. Help us uh, make the connection between these three kind of elements here of the, you know, the, uh, you, you know, the, the settler colonial imperialist extraction happening around, uh, you know, the subjugation of nature, land grabbing, water grabbing, power grabbing, data grabbing, as well as what we see happening with the kind of resurgence and recreation of physiognomic and phrenological uh, race sciences through artificial intelligence, and then all of the kind of ecological uh, uh, kind of politics uh, that we've been talking about. Like, help us, there, there, I, I think there's a connection here between these three things, but um, that your work kind of sits at the center. But I would love to, for you to help us make that connection uh, more explicit. Yeah, I, I love I love this question. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's like such a good question. I hope I do it justice. Um, I think if we take if we sort of like take it into parts, uh, one is that I, I do have this other um, piece coming out soon where I explore specifically like the investments that we're making in data centers to generate sort of humans in and through data. And I think this connects because we have you know whether it's uh, therapy bots or whether it's these uh, holograms of Whitney Houston or um, the voice for Anthony Bourdain or, you know, all of these things. So we're investing a lot um, in um, sort of extracting from humans to then recreate them in this form, which I think is really interesting because it would definitely point to 
those things that we deem important to extract from humans. So um, not fully unpacked in this piece, more just like, hey, should we be thinking about this kind of thing? Um, the other thing that you said, uh, you know, and it comes back to Edward's question too, was there's always, you know, in this like data grabbing and collection of data, there is always almost inherently, whether explicit or not, a project of sort of eugenics thinking. There's always a project of categorizing, of uh, setting certain, you know, types of values to those different categories and then putting them in a particular order. And we all know here on this call and probably most of your listeners that this is always driven by profit, right? So I think that that's no, like, you know, it's not like a neutral um, project of gathering data and then seeing what kind of patterns emerge for like the interest of scientific exploration. Like it's really driven by profit. And so I think what we, what we would need to tease out is like, what is profitable, at least in this current context. And that, you know, the ways in which we've set up our entire systems means that not everyone can be equal. And so you can, you know, and I think this is like simplistic in some sense, but you can use data to further justify who is deserving and who should be um, working because they're less deserving for those who are more deserving. So there's a way in which that data just, you know, risks recreating that because it's very profitable and we've seen we've seen that on some other scales just like how you know uh, Sophia Noble's work uh, algorithms of impression just like um, how particular types of searches are very profitable we've seen that Facebook you know pretty much was willing to dismantle U.S. democracy because it's profitable to circulate in disinformation right so when I say profit is like the main sort of driver behind this, it's really important because this is not necessarily how it needs to be, but this is how these systems are set up. And those aren't, you know, those are features, those are sort of uh, built in and they're reinforced and they're invested into. And I think that's why all those big tech guys are, are telling everyone to vote Republican. Like these are, you know, they're all uh, very intentional political maneuvers to maintain those hierarchies. And so I don't know if eugenics is too strong a word. I don't personally think it is, but I think it, it, it risks washing over the, the specific and way, specific ways in which data can do this. So I think data can do that um, through surveillance, of course, but also through various insurance policies. Um, I think it can do it through, you know, the tracking of eye movement of, of, of students. Uh, it can do it through health. I think health, it might be the next big obvious frontier for these things. Um, so eugenics is not just about sort of that kind of overt racism. I think it's about taking the lessons of eugenics and just saying, well, what other ways can we think people, certain people have value and others aren't deserving of whether it's healthcare or education or whatever. So I think that that, and then to connect it to the environment, um, sort of the, the, the decolonial and feminist critiques would say, well, it's a myth to have separated humans from nature in the first place. It's a myth to have separated, um, you know, these, these kinds of, um, dualities, these kinds of thinking. So I think that that's, um, a thing to try to re sort of reconnect. Um, but I think more overtly is the exploitation of humans in this way 
these sort of extractivist logics apply so obviously also to the environment. And so it's just the same sort of the same mentality, the same set of logics that say that we benefit from extraction. Here are all the ways in which we can apply extraction. So I, I'm sure there's much more <laughs> to it than that. But I think it's the same kind of violence that we're identifying in 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 these models. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I, I am seeing this sort of riffing off of your question, but um, I don't know that I'm particularly well positioned to answer that any better than anyone else on this call, uh, truthfully, because uh, I think we all have the sense that this is brewing and it's not going to end well. And so I think it's good to think about the data center. It's good to think about the environmental impacts of the data center, but it can also sort of be a distraction from the ways in which there are things really being like taking grip now and being reinforced now. And, um, and maybe some folks want to shift their attention to these things as well. Yeah, I think you are uh, well positioned and 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 doing very well at you know uh, answering and raising a lot of very interesting questions. And you know, I want to actually refer to a, a, a sentence in your uh, big data ecologies paper that I think is really. Um, important here and raises a lot, you know, a lot of these connections where you write, quote, the problem, however, is that while the concept of a global ecosystem is necessary to make a case against greed and overconsumption, it is also a reinvocation of the same scientific regimes that have long rationalized the domination of machine logics over nature. Right. And then you go on to say, uh, we entrust technology with the task to solve the problems it creates, even if water, forest and rare earth minerals are inherently and ultimately counter commercially sustainable. In other words, the planet can never replenish the raw materials that have been extruded and once disused, returned as waste to the ecosystem. And I think you raise a really important point here about what you say is the, the quote, the time lag of the effects and repercussions of hasty and greedy human interventions causing animal extinction or forest depletion take significantly longer to manifest than capitalism invest in managing those same resources. There's a lot wrapped up here. I think this idea of the domination of machine logics over nature is really important. And it's not just the ecological points that we've been talking about, because that's the domination of machine logics over a particular kind of nature. Um, but also, it, that is eugenics as well. That's the domination of machine logics over a different kind of nature, in this sense, a, a, a biological nature, or at least a perceived kind of biological essentialism a genetic essentialism uh, of her you know, heritable traits and qualities kind of in you know uh, biologically uh, uh, in integral traits and qualities I think you are right to use the word eugenics here uh, because it's also important just as any of these words like violence or domination or you know they all exist in a gradient right and it doesn't make it any it doesn't make it not eugenics if it's like you know, uh, not the wholesale sterilization of entire populations, right? That's obviously eugenics, but so too is eugenics the control over uh, reproduction uh, of people in terms of, you know, who can, you know, miscegenation laws, right? Like that's eugenics, but also... I think we should frame within this, you know, eugenics things around like uh, some a startup we talked about ages ago. Now that I've just been remembering the, I think it was called Sonus or something. It was the one that uh, is an AI system designed to make 
call center workers uh, have a uh, a voice speaking a voice coded as white American, right? So like Southeast Asian call center workers can you know turn on this AI system, uh, you know, powered by uh, you know a cloud somewhere, right? Uh, that to make them sound white American. That's eugenics, right? That's technological eugenics because that is the a normative judgment that a white American voice is better in some way um, to some people for some reason than a voice that is, you know, accented uh, in, in a different way. Uh, and that to me is eugenics. And that's also the domination of machine logics over the way people speak in that regard, over a part, a part of their biological and cultural and social being. And, and so I, I, I think you are right to bring this in, uh, this language in, um, to, to this discussion, because I think it, it's important to not only uh, use that as a way to, yes, it's provocative, but it also is analytically useful for revealing the kind of this social relations, uh, power dynamics, normative judgments at work here. But it's also historically useful to be to to contextualize this within a longer uh, history, a longer thread of these kinds of developments. That these things didn't uh, that these logics, these technologies, did not just emerge out of nowhere, but are the product of uh, longstanding and ongoing um, logics and technologies. One of the projects that I'm working on now too is um, using. DNA itself to store uh, data, right? And so my interest in that was not so much in another sort of technological solution, like, oh, we're going to change the format, um, you know, and the, the hype around using synthetic DNA to store data, or even for computation, right? You can use synthetic DNA um, to replace the current infrastructure, uh, theoretically, but also practically at this at this stage. And um, what was interesting to me was not that this was another solution, another storage modality. It was more that um, there was a lot of sort of the hype around this was, was the question of the environmental impact of our current infrastructure and how um, not very impactful, you know, synthetic DNA would be in terms of scale, in terms of energy consumption. Etc. I don't think that's quite true, but um, I think that's like too long a conversation to get into. But to come back to your point, it's also the thing that gripped me was that it's a continuation. You know, if we hadn't had the Human Genome Project, if we hadn't had those eugenics projects, if we hadn't had that kind of settler scientific sort of uh, focus on that, we wouldn't have DNA data storage proposed as a data storage solution either. And so I think that I'm interested in it from the technological uh, like um, question, but, but more so from sort of what we've been talking about here, which is that these questions of eugenics are baked into these big data ecologies. Hopefully that sort of <laughs> encapsulates, encapsulates everything you were saying. And I love that episode that you were referring to about the, um, the voices like that. That was a stunning episode, and I think everyone should listen to it. I, it, it makes me think also about what we've been talking about, about whether or not people would articulate goals or have them as consciously at the front of their mind and situating them with eugenics, right? Because talking with those people, um, for them, it was very clearly like, well, this is what you have to do. 
right? This is how you have to, this is how you get ahead. This is how you thrive by sounding um, like a white American. And, and, and in fact that everybody else is going to be doing this. So we have to be doing this. So I'm also, I'm also curious with like, you know, with, with technologies like this, right? With, with the growth and deployment of technologies that might be rooted in uh, settler eugenics mentalities. I mean, is there, is there a concern that there becomes a point where they can't be rolled back either because the material infrastructure is too embedded and everyone becomes reliant on it or because they get normalized and rationalized to the point where they, it becomes almost they're, they're hegemonic and it and they no longer understood or thought of as as what they actually are i mean or is there always like a is there always a point where you can contest them and roll them back yeah, I'm thinking back to that episode, just, you know, the sort of AI power for like altering voices. And I remember on the episode, you you discussed how it can be framed sort of as, um, as a good thing or a bad thing, essentially. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, not to say at all that technologies are neutral and without consequence, but there's a way in which... Um, the discourses and narratives that get built up around these technologies will, I think, in some ways be as important as the technology itself. So is it too late? Is it already baked in? I mean, I'm not that optimistic. I would say yes. Like we have this huge apparatus that we keep investing in. It's almost like, um, in some sense, the pandemic has exacerbated this, but the, the, this, this thing we can't live without. And so the end goals of that thing, which is something we've been sort of dancing around for this whole conversation seem to be, I think, inevitably, I mean, I don't know what it would take to push back, to transform, to alter, to like, uh, change the course of big tech. On the other hand, we're seeing this week, you know, people, eject out of Twitter maybe and go into Mastodon and the Fediverse or whatever. And I'm thinking that will have material consequence. Like it's maybe a bit too early to think about that now, but these things, like I remember MySpace and Friendster and these things seem really too big to fail at one moment in time. And so, but they collapsed really quickly and really, really sort of spectacularly. So I think we might see that with Twitter and we might see that with Facebook and the metaverse doesn't seem to be such a hot idea after all, but it might, you know, sort of iterate in other versions because I think virtual reality is actually going to sustain. So it's hard to anticipate. And I try not to predict, I try not to predict as a media scholar. And I try to just say like, what am I like, what, what sort of things are undeniable? What kind of momentums are, are like, uh, undeniable right now in, in these sort of contexts. Um, but I think it would take a big, a big effort. I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I think politics are a good indication um, of where big tech is going to go. And so I think people might have to opt out of things like Amazon and things like Google and things like the metaverse, et cetera, in order for that part of the internet to collapse. But again, my guess is as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does actually, it raises, you know, with something like Mastodon, which is, yeah, a, a federated, you know, decentralized in, in, in various ways. And, you know, obviously something like data centers are highly centralized, uh, uh, you know, in, the, in, in different ways, right? And we'll get more into this, I think, with Dan Green in terms of like the centralization of data centers where, yes, like big tech 
tech does build its own data centers, but even more so, the vast majority of data centers are built by real estate investment trusts that then essentially uh, rent out space in, you know, that treat data centers like land, like property. Uh, and a server farm is just uh, like a condo uh, that you're renting in a, in a building, essentially, right? Like that's kind that's a, that is legally how, like for tax reasons, that is how uh, it's kind of conceptualized and structured. But that means it's highly centralized. And there, of course, has been all this stuff around kind of decentralization regarding, you know, crypto, Web3, now Mastodon with the you know, federation and stuff like that. But what that means is that, uh, and, and this re reaches back as well, like, a decade plus ago, you know, you've got people like Jaron Lanier and, you know, his uh, book, Who Owns the Future, talking about the solution to the uh, centralization uh, of, of like data, um, you know, is to create uh, a hyper marketized for a uh, marketized, a hyper marketization of data, right? Where it's like everybody owns and uh, transacts their own personal data and Part of that means like having a server under your bed or something where you keep your own personal data stored uh, rather than it being in some centralized server in a Facebook uh, data center or something like that, which is really, you know, uh, on one hand, like quite an absurd idea to think about for now in terms of thinking about like how everybody has their own server. Um, but I mean, socially, technologically, we can get over that, right? Like we also have, you know, gone past the age of mainframes to personal computers. And so we all have our own, you know, CPUs and stuff in various ways. So sure, you know, maybe you can do that. I, I wonder as well, though, like what thinking ecologically, what's the logics of that look like if you decentralize all these servers where, uh, there are actually economies of scale for having these large data centers. There are, there is the ability of, uh, of a Google or Facebook or one of these real estate investment trusts to, uh, you know, create uh, to to expend la large amounts of capital to buy renewable energy to partner with you know water utilities you know the things that uh, they can do because they are very large and highly capitalized institutions that if we were to break up the data centers you know uh, in the sense of not socialize them as a uh, a really great uh, you know Morozov essay uh, was titled you know socialize the data centers but break them up in the sense of decentralize them so that we all have our own data you know we're all operating our own server farms um, I, I I would suspect that would actually have massively de uh, uh, destructive environmental consequences if like we're all suddenly you know as households drawing tons more power using tons more water to cool our own personalized uh, server farms um, you know I, I don't know if you've thought about about the environmental effects of that kind of decentralization but I'm curious what you think Mel yeah I mean it was the first I, I, I made a Mastodon account like everyone else over the over last weekend and then the first question and only thing I have tooted, quote unquote, on Mastodon was, you know, what are the environmental impacts of this transition? And I got all sorts of answers. And sometimes I'm more just interested in like the moment, the conversation, than I, I, I you know, I, 
I, I don't get it right away. If I'm honest, like everyone was talking about these economies of scale and, um, economists jumped in to talk about all sorts of things. But what was interesting was just how sophisticated the conversation was at that provocation in ways that it really wasn't 10 years ago. So people are on it. Um, and so I think that we will see, you know, in, in a really short time, really amazing reflections on this question. The thing that we see less, and I don't know if this makes me too radical, but we're going to hopefully, you know, as a, you know, we are really pushing as an environmental movement to get rid of oil and gas. Like we're saying like petroculture, no more. Couldn't we say the same thing about the internet? Like, is it a given that we need this technology and that in sort of these temporal frames, like it is a forever thing? Like, some of these things are finite and I feel like it's, we can't both say the internet is unsustainable, but we're going to have it forever. And so I, I wonder, <laughs> you know, as a, again, as a provocation, I keep saying that name because that word, because everything is provocative, but like, is there a sense that maybe it needs to, you know, materially completely be reconfigured, whether it's to have, you know, portable <laughs> storage at home, um, or is it something we need to shut down? Like all of us are old enough on this call to know a time before the internet and it was just fine. And I, you know, I think that it's not so much going back, but, you know, just assessing what we can sort of withstand culturally, materially, environmentally. So I don't know. Does anyone talk about shutting down the internet? I haven't heard that as much as this constant shifting of the investments, right? Can so. I get an amen? Because yeah, you're definitely know. speaking our language. That's for yeah, sure. No. I think that is that is such an important point, right? This we all talk, and there's a lot of talk about how so so many of these systems are more unethical, unsustainable, violent. But no talk about getting rid of them if they are these threats to us. Then why are we quibbling about? You know, as a lot of the discussions end up becoming, you know, the best way to do the reduction of their harm instead of like, you know, rooting it out and trying to trying to figure out something else and maybe figuring out like we don't need these things. I think that's also another thing, right? Like maybe we don't need global communication networks. Maybe we don't need global a, a digital and maybe some or attempt at patchworks of, of different internets connected to one another. But there's there's such resistance on every single level because of all the interests that are invested in this because of all the money that is there to be made from this because of all the control all the hierarchies all the all the, all, the, all these systems that backstop it and you've talked about this in, a, in in your in your work as well about how it is just hard i think there's a tendency to like simplify the system because it also makes it have the appearance of this is inevitable, this is neutral, and this is also not that complex. We can fix it. We can have the best of both worlds. We can eat our cake and we can have it too. But it's also it's not really clear to me if that's even possible, right? We may have to actually give up a lot of these things and probably should. Even if I think there's also a case to be made, even if like there are things that we can keep and they won't like and we can figure out a way to be sustainable. Like maybe some types of technology should just never ever be made. Um because they open up the door to insidious outcomes, even if you have a, a vigilant watcher on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, you're you're speaking our, our language here, and I, I but I do, I think you are right to raise this that on the left 
there is a lot of attention and, 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 and with the internet, right. We're thinking like we, you know, Ben Taranoff was on the show recently talking about his book, you know, uh, the, the people's internet, you know, a friend of the show, Astra Taylor wrote a book much longer ago called the people's platform, you know, and a lot of that is about, there's a, a an overwhelming focus on the left and has always been. And, and now with focusing on the, it's, you know, focusing on the internet of applying distribution, right. Thinking about distribution, or redistribution, uh, whether that's you know redistribution of resources, redistribution of power, redistribution of capabilities, uh, you know all of the, so you know redistribution in a in a a, a, a variety of of, of senses, um, you know material senses, and so. I think a lot of the most kind of radical thinking about the internet right now kind of takes it as a given, as an assumption, right? As a kind of axiom and, and instead begins to work around like what does a, a redistributive politics of the internet look like in terms of, you know, does that mean it's decentralized, right? I mean, this is ultimately what, you know, blockchain and, and this, you know, the environmental impacts of blockchain are, are and crypto are obvious and it's the whole impetus behind Behind the long-awaited merge on Ethereum from proof of work to proof of stake. And, you know, so there's diff there's those kinds of aspects. There's the kind of, you know, the socialization, right? About a kind of redistribution of ownership and power and authority uh, uh, and governance of the internet, right? But all that is to say that wh whatever the different tendencies uh, we, we take, um, it's always about digestion. Uh, distribution, redistribution with the internet as an axiom. I think you are correct to raise here, Mel, that there, um, that there needs to be much more attention seriously paid to, uh, uh, disassembly, uh, destruction, degrowth, um, as a, not, uh, not as a, um, uh, a one or the other, but as the other side of the coin of a distributive or redistributive politics. I think a lot of redistribution must rely on or must result in uh, uh, a kind of destruction, disassembly, degrowth of other things, right? Like, um, and, and I think you are right to, to raise that question. Do we need an internet in the sense of like a global digital communications network? Who really benefits the most from the internet, right? Like, you know, we all benefit uh, like we wouldn't be talking right now if not for the internet, right? Like, but we benefit in ways that are comparatively uh, so paltry compared to other, and you know, the institutions with actual material power and wealth in the world, right? Like, we benefit in ways that essentially amount to. Uh, modicum increases of convenience and capabilities uh, for sending and receiving information, right? Like, uh, it, it, like it's nice, it becomes central to our, our, our life, but also in ways that we all hate. <laughs> we, we hate doing email. Uh, that is essentially what an internet, what the uh, working on the internet is, is we all have email jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. We hate, you know, all, we hate posting, uh, you know, articles or 
writing at the speed of the internet. Like, you know, it has all these like very also obvious and uh, uh, harmful effects on our life. Not to mention like who really actually benefits from these global communication networks. It's finance, it's the military, uh, it's, you know, uh, the largest, most profitable corporations to ever exist in human history, right? Like, like they are benefiting in ways that are, uh, uh, infinitely larger than, than, than how we benefit. And if that is the case, and I think it is the case, I think you are then right to raise that question of seriously of like, what's the trade-off here? Do, you know, what do we lose and what can we gain, uh, by shutting off the internet? And, and I think, uh, a, a, a real material analysis that takes into account all of these things, uh, you know, Financially, politically, socially, but also ecologically, uh, not to mention the very future of, uh, of our planet and the, the human species and, 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 and all of that. Um, I, I think the trade off is one at the very least, the answer is not obvious that, uh, having the internet is better than not having the internet. I have it under good authority that if you put Google into Google, it will shut off the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Why haven't we tried this? <laughs> um, I, I do. I, on that point, I do want to kind of bring us to a close by uh, by uh, reading uh, from the the last. Uh, paragraph or of, of your big data ecologies paper, rather um, two parts from the, the last page that I think are really kind of nicely summarize uh, a lot of this and, 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 you know, give us in a, a kind of forward looking direction. So you write, in economic terms, value is independent of the resource itself. Nature comes to belong to the highest bidder. This in turn means the ecosystemic logic is one based on present and potential utility with little to no concern for the long term or for future generations. While the idea of human impact on nature propelled by neoliberal policies is now indisputable, the concept of the ecology and of managing ecosystems risk providing false hope. What we need to come to terms with as a culture is that there is no equilibrium to return to. That is a worldview rendered obsolete. I think that's 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 spot on because so much of this kind of neoliberal governance of ecosystem service management, as it's called, uh, these kind of scientific regimes of control and machine logics that are wrapped up in ecology, a lot of this comes out of cybernetics and the application of cybernetics to nature. And for anybody who knows anything about cybernetics, ultimately cybernetic systems are about uh, achieving and maintaining equilibrium through the communication of feedback mechanisms of information, right? And so this idea that we can just preserve a, uh, a static state uh, of the environment while at the same time uh, fueling an infinite growth economy on a static state equilibrium nature. Obviously contradictory, right? And yet that is essentially the underlying logics of the, gov of the uh, uh, ecological governance regimes that exist right now, that you can have your cake and eat it too. Uh, and, and big tech 
the, these big data ecologies uh, are at once kind of playing directly into that in the sense that they benefit from it, but they are also essential to the uh, perpetuation of what is ultimately contrary to their long-termist uh, uh, philosophies an extremely short-term and immediate uh, you know, grab, a land grab, value grab, data grab, power grab, water grab, everything grab. I think with that, uh, Mel, is there any anything that you would like to leave us on and where can people um, find your work or what what should they be looking out for uh, on the horizon from you? Yeah, so there's a lot of really amazing work coming out around data centers and from an environmental media perspective. So um, one thing, I don't know if you can share it somehow on my behalf, but I have this open bibliography um, where basically anyone writing about data centers or even there's a list of podcasts, sort of just general resources about uh, these things that we've been talking about. Um, I'm trying to create a kind of critical data center studies uh, bibliography that anyone can use um, and uh, and add to. So I'd love to share that. And then I've, uh, something that I haven't talked about, if you go to critical studies of the dot cloud, um, I'm also doing the same thing with art um, in relation to data, like data centers and the environment. And there's tons of amazing artwork that um, are really an important part of this conversation. So um, they're also on that open bibliography, but those are the two things I'll send you links to um, that I think people should pay uh, some attention to because there is incredible work coming out right now about all these things we've talked about. And we have just, I, I feel like we just, you know, we're able to, get into it just a little bit but there's a lot um there's a lot of nods i'd like to make and in some ways they're all in my bibliography and i think it's important to just um you know highlight some of that work as well if we can yeah yeah no send me links to that and all of that will be in the episode description as well as links to your twitter account however long that lasts uh and your website as well so people can check out your work there so uh and and with that you can also find us uh, at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, and we will keep doing that until we find the plug to the internet and pull it as hard as we can, turning off this podcast and everything else. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> so uh, until next time, later. Adios. Adios.